When you see the countries, when you see the organizations that stepped up in that moment of sudden adversity, the ones that are thriving now are ones that have a different type of leader, a leader that exemplifies the values of servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy, the bright side as a necessary antidote to the dark triad of leadership. Hey everyone, and welcome to Leading the Rounds. As a reminder, if you want to connect with us further, check out our pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In this episode, we bring back a guest from Season 1 and interview Hamza Khan. Hamza is a multi-award winning marketer, best-selling author, and global keynote speaker whose TED Talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed over a million times. He is also the author of two books, The Burnout Gamble, and his most recent book, Leadership Reinvented. If you want to learn more about Hamza, check out his website, hamzakhan.ca. In our episode last season with Hamza Khan, we talked about his leadership experiences, challenging the status quo, as well as his take on burnout being a leadership issue. In today's episode, we focus on his new book, Leadership Reinvented, and go through his belief that servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy are the key to 21st century leadership. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Hamza Khan. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We are so excited because today is our first round two. I don't know what to call it. What would you call it, Caleb? Episode two, round two, uh, whatever you want to call it with Hamza Khan. We've got a veteran. We've got a Leading the Rounds veteran on the show today. A lot of you remember him. He's one of our first ever interviews. Hamza Khan, the man himself. How are you doing, Hamza? Oh man, I am honored to be part of Leading the Rounds round two. Uh, or second round or, you know, episode two, whatever this is, I'm, I feel like an honorary third, third host, if you will. Uh, I was telling y'all just before we hit record that the first time is always very nerve wracking because I'm learning about you and I'm learning your cadence and flow and your style of questions. And let me say, I mean, that was one of my favorite recordings till date. I just felt immediately at ease. I felt like, you know, 10 minutes in, I was just catching up with friends. You have a very natural way about you. And the second time we're recording now, all of those nerves are gone. So I'm totally loose, relaxed. I'm doing good. Not great considering the global state of affairs, but all things considered, I'm good. I'm optimistic. And I'm excited to share everything that you and your audience wants to know. Great. Yeah. I mean, we feel the same way. I don't know about you, Caleb, but I, yeah, it just, it just feels like a friend. We're going to, we're going to have this nice conversation. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything to add, Caleb? No, 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 no. That's definitely how I feel as well. All right. All right. Well, Hamza, you just wrote a book. I did. And we had the pleasure of reading it. Yes. But our listeners might not have had that pleasure of reading it. Would you mind giving us the like five minute synopsis of, of your book, Leadership Reinvented? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, first of all, guys, thank you so much for reading it. I mean, uh, the two hosts of this podcast, Peter and Caleb, were among the first 20 to 25 people in the world who read the book. Uh, and it meant a lot to me. This book was a long time coming, not just for me, but even thinking about the paradigm that inspired me to write this. There's this old, outdated idea of leadership that still has 
some vestiges lingering around our world. It's this idea that employees are lazy, uninterested, they lack intrinsic motivation, and it produces the sort of leader that is toxic, the sort of leader that exhibits three distinct characteristics, not always to the same proportion, but usually with um, you know uh, one or two in greater greater quantity than the others. Those qualities are Machiavellianism, psychopathy or psychopathy, depending on how you pronounce it, and narcissism. Those three traits comprise what is known as the dark triad of leadership. And we have seen our world be destabilized by that style of leadership. You think about, for example, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. You think about Adam Newman of WeWork, Travis Kalanick of Uber. You think about some world leaders. Uh, you think about maybe even a boss that you had that was avoidant, was aggressive, was authoritarian, and made you hate work, that elicited the worst version of you, that maybe forced you to quit, maybe forced you to become resentful, maybe then led the company, led the organization down the chasm of time and it tumbled to the seabed of failure. That style of leadership we have learned during COVID-19 is not effective. If COVID has taught us anything, looking at the global response to the crisis, there's a very common thread. When you see the countries, when you see the organizations that stepped up in that moment of sudden adversity, the ones that are thriving now are ones that have a different type of leader, a leader that exemplifies the values of servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy, the bright side as a necessary antidote to the dark triad of leadership. So this book was very much an attempt to build on a TEDx talk that I delivered a couple of years ago, Stop Managing, Start Leading, that went viral and that provoked a lot of imposter syndrome in me because I delivered it when I was so young and so new in my leadership experience. They were grand ideas, and I sort of put the idea out before I embodied it myself. And so I felt a lot of imposter syndrome about catching up to the ideas that I put out there that seemed to take hold with my cohort of young millennials. Flash forward now seven or five, yeah, six, six, yeah, six years later, you know, I went through a bit of a dip and I lost confidence in those leadership principles. I started to doubt myself and ask myself, hey man, like those ideas that you put out on the TEDx stage back then, are they still valid? Do they still hold up? And I was losing it for a bit. But then two back-to-back -back experiences, number one, doing a speaking tour in Australia, revived that spark, fanned that ember for me, and then witnessing the global response to COVID-19 sealed the deal. And it made me commit to perhaps the most strong viewpoint that I have, which is the dark triad of leadership, the old style of leadership is officially dead. Mm -hmm. So that is what I've uh, codified in this book, hopefully. So let's take a, a little bit of a deeper dive into those four. So the first one you mentioned, use a mnemonic side. So med, med students love mnemonics. So <laughs> it's an easy way to remember it for everybody. Side, servitude, innovation, diversity, empathy. There and so go. that first one, servitude. And so what does it mean to you to be a servant leader? And how have you worked to embody this is in your time as a leader? So this is a great question. I'm, I'm really good, glad you asked, Caleb it immediately takes me back to one of my first jobs as a graphic designer at a major university here in Canada. And uh, my boss, literally on the first day, the first meeting that we had, he sits down and his name is Alan and he says, all right, Hamza, so what I'm going to need you to do is write yourself out of a job. I was just like, what? I literally just got the job, man. Like, can we talk about hours and pay and bonuses and benefits? And you're telling me to write myself out of a job. Can you explain? And he says, I need you to get so good at this job that you can teach other people how to do it. You can build up a team 
and then you can move on to something else because there's other problems in the organization, other issues and challenges that we need you to tackle. Become so good that you can empower other people to become better than you. And that made me scratch my head because it was such a novice. I was so junior in my career. That style of leadership is known as servant leadership. It's this idea that you exist at the lowest rung of the organization in service of everyone else. You're not this leader at the apotheosis. You're not at the apex of a traditional hierarchy. Instead, what you are is you're either at the bottom of an inverted pyramid or better yet, shout out to Astawa who gave me another visualization. You're at the center of the organization radiating outwards. So servitude is all about enabling other people around you, enabling your team to reach self-actualization on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to empower them with the technical and soft skills to do their job better than they even thought they could do it. And then to effectively write yourself out of a job because you're no longer needed as a result of everybody around you being empowered to do what you do, thereby freeing up your time to go and focus on another problem. And the reason why people avoid traditionally engaging in servant style leadership is because it involves an intentional obsolescence. And I think people are afraid that if they make themselves obsolete, that they're not going to be useful in the organization, that people are going to look at them and say, hey, you're not good at what you do anymore. You're redundant. We don't need you. You're useless. Move on. But in fact, the opposite thing happens because you create champions, you create a culture of excellence, and you expand the organization's collective capacity. And you can then take that energy and shift it to another area of the organization. So that is servitude in a nutshell. And I think the, the, the example that I use in the book, guys, is uh, Phil Jackson, the legendary coach of the Chicago Bulls and then the Los Angeles Lakers as the embodiment, in my opinion, of servitude style, servitudinal leadership. It reminds me of that picture. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it of uh, it's like people pulling a chariot and then it's like boss on one end that's sitting behind like cracking the whip. And then it's leader on the other end where he's right alongside of the workers pulling the chariot. And it, it makes me think of, you know, my time as both an employee and then leading people are just so much more willing to jump into your mission and vision. If they see you grinding with them, if they see you working hard right alongside them. There's something about that, man. So like, if, if I may ask about that experience, what was it like when, you know, your boss, you know, was, was acting in the way that they did. How, how did, how did it make you feel as an employee? Yeah. See, I've seen, I feel like as an employee, I've seen both sides. I've worked in, I worked when I was, when I was really young, um, at a party rental company. So setting up tents and, uh, uh, events and, you know, we had managers that would, order you around and then leave and you'd never see them again or yeah. order you around and they'd just be, you know, hanging out watching. And then there was other managers who would be right there with you, you know, pounding in stakes and putting up poles. And it makes you work so much harder when they're right there with you than if you were just, you know, on your own. That reminds me, you know, I was, uh, for a, for a brief period of time, I was in the Canadian armed forces as a reservist and uh, I was a grunt essentially. And I remember that we had this strange rule where we had to salute captains. And these captains didn't serve a day in the military. They never went on tour. There was a not necessarily a loophole, but there was some system that allowed people who graduated with university degrees to immediately rank higher than sergeants and lieutenants who had put in the time. And I remember this very palpable feeling amongst all of the grunts at the time that we didn't respect the captains that came in out of university that didn't see a day of tour. 
Meanwhile, our respect was with the people that were in the field with us, just like you had the people in your event company digging in the stakes and building things right there alongside you. There was a camaraderie and a sort of affiliative bond that was formed as a result of that work. And I think that sort of overcoming adversity together, working side by side, uh, encountering stress together has a strange bonding effect that I think doesn't exist when you have a leader on the top down that's dictating things to you that you never get to see that, you know, a, a, that, that occupies a rarefied air like that, that, that reminds me of a chapter in um, not even a chapter. It was actually in the podcast, the ABC podcast about Elizabeth Holm and Theranos, where one of the whistleblowers said that there was the world of the carpet and then there was the world of the tile. So Theranos, for those of y'all who don't know, was a notorious blood testing company that went bust. It was a, uh, a like a catastrophic failure. And the CEO at the time, Elizabeth Holmes, was the personification of the dark triad of leadership like just total psychopath, very narcissistic and Machiavellian to a degree that would make Machiavelli himself shudder. Anyways, these whistleblowers described how if you were in the corporate environment, you had this dazzling uh, CEO, this leader who was on the cover of Forbes, who was doing interviews, who was mixing and mingling with brass and world leaders. But the reality of it was very different because she was so disconnected from the doctors, from the, the lab technicians, from the tiled world, where she was an absolute asshole, excuse my language, just completely dressing down people, you know, subjecting them to stress to the degree where their chief science officer committed suicide. Like that's how, you know, the dark triad can manifest. And so, you know, what you shared over there, Caleb took me down memory lane, made me revisit my time in the, in the reserves, but then also made me bring this back to the dark triad of leadership as a totally outdated and ineffective style of leader. So when you were talking about that story, it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes, and I've never thought about this quote with a leadership framework. And I'm going to read it, but I'm going to actually change it to, to a little bit to fit the leadership role, but it's by Teddy Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts or the leader who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or the leader who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. Oh man, I'm getting goosebumps. I love that. I only recently discovered that quote and it has been a game changer for me. I mean, had I heard it, I heard it, I learned about it once the book was already submitted. I actually went back and insisted that we could try to shoehorn that quote in somewhere, but I'll have to bring it in for maybe a second or third edition. I love that quote. It is, it speaks to something deep within the human condition. This need to know that the person that you are working with, the person who, whom you are giving your time, energy, and attention to, um, is is right there in the trenches with you, is uh, somebody who has your best interests at heart, who can see beyond the mission and, and see the people and is able to balance the needs of the mission and the needs of the people. I love that, man. Thanks for sharing that. I got to write that down. It's kind of like the uh, summer camp effect. I don't know if either of you have been to summer camp. No? What do you mean by that? Yes, I've been to summer <laughs> okay, camp. Been to summer camp. <laughs> okay. So, you know, in summer camp, the first thing you usually do with your group that you've been put together with is you do team bonding activities and usually active team bonding activities, whether it's solving a puzzle. Like I remember there's one, this one where three people got on this giant frame of an A 
and we had to work together without touching the ground to like walk it across a field, stuff like that. And eventually this builds a level of trust that, that you then feel more able to be vulnerable around them and then do the more important things at summer camp, which were the um, reflection exercises and the personal and interpersonal growth exercises. Mm-hmm. There's something there. And I wish uh, I came prepared with uh, some, some, some research to back it up, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident. I know I've read it uh, and it just never stuck with me, but there is an actual bond that happens during adversity. And there's a, there's a, there's a term to describe it. It's just eluding me right now, but this is well-documented that when people experience adversity together, when they experience hardship and overcome an obstacle together, um, it does something. It, uh, it, it triggers the, um, the bonding, the bonding chemical. Oxytocin. Oxytocin. There we go. So not to digress too much, but this is actually um, one of the reasons why I think uh, CrossFit is such a wonderful activity. I'm sorry, and you couldn't Pete, pick a better team sport? Like football, Pete, Peter, Peter knows that, that I, I am big into CrossFit, but or I feel basketball. like <laughs> CrossFit is so, I mean, it, it, it is a painful, <laughs> Golf even, <man. laughs> it, it can be a painful activity. And yet you're with people and you're in it together and you realize we're all going through the same thing together Mm -hmm. and you create that bond. And Mm -hmm. some of the best friends I've made have been through doing CrossFit and through meeting people through that, because just like you said, we're all going through this, this hardship per se together and you bond through that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or starting a podcast. (laughs) Or starting a podcast as well. Or starting a podcast, man. 100%. But Hamza, I liked the way you defined servant leadership, which was to basically write yourself out of a job or empower others to do the things that you do now, but better so you can move on. And that ties in really nicely with the idea of innovation, because if you're constantly working on the same thing or managing the same people without empowering them to take over and take ownership, you're never going to give yourself that space to broaden your your group, your, your team. Absolutely. And, and every organization, regardless of its um, uh, uh, industry, I mean, it could be a government organization, it could be a country itself, it could be a small nonprofit, uh, a large startup, a Fortune 500, heck, a Fortune 100 company, doesn't matter. Every organization goes through the same four stages of evolution. They're introduced, they grow, they mature, and then they have to decide if they're going to renew themselves. And if they don't renew themselves successfully, they decline. It always ends the same way. And in order to get to that fourth stage and make a decision that would err in the side of innovation, you're going to have to allocate hard resources towards innovation. It's not something that you can just hope happens at that moment of inflection. You actually have to plan for it. And the best organizations, they do things like hackathons. They have dedicated innovation divisions. They empower their people on a daily basis to have bright ideas, to think outside the box. Innovation has to very much become part of the organization's DNA. People should feel empowered to suggest new things because if you do things the same way they've always been done, um, in today's world, that's more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous than ever before. You know, this adage of do nothing and nothing will be done doesn't hold up anymore. Do nothing and something will happen. Time will pass you by and your organization will be changed. And I, I, I mentioned this a couple of times in the book. Great uh, quote from General Electric ex-CEO Jack Welch, who said, if the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. And the outside and inside being respectively the outside environment of an organization and the inside environment of the organization. So it is imperative for all the new 
modern leaders and even the seasoned leaders who are listening to this podcast right now to take stock of how innovative their company is internally? Is there a culture of innovation? Do your people feel empowered to speak up and suggest ideas? Do they feel empowered to speak up and point to potential disruptors in the marketplace? Can they think of new ideas? Are they are they empowered to bring those new ideas to the table and share them freely without fear of consequence? If not, you're probably stifling innovation and that's going to catch up with you at a time when you know you reach that inflection point and you'll be forced to change rather than determine and dictate how to change well in advance of that. So I have a question for you about innovation. Whenever there's innovative technology or innovative ideas, there's always new adopters. Maybe there's moderate adopters and then there's slow adopters. And something that I maybe struggle with, or I guess I would categorize myself into the moderate to slow adopter generally with technology and with, with some things. And the, one of the reasons I feel that way about myself is I don't like to necessarily be fatty to use a uh, um, very uneloquent language right there, <laughs> but, but to, to just hop from fad to fad to fad. Sure. And how do you balance being innovative and recognizing, you know, I need to stay with the cutting edge, but then also, you know, being grounded and not just changing all the time and keeping up with the fad that's happening, you know, at this time of the year. Hey, Caleb, I, I, I totally resonate with that. I think I'm getting old to the point where um, I'm starting to now feel old. <laughs> I think I was in denial for quite some time. I, I ran a class last night and I asked one of our guest lecturers who was talking about going viral on TikTok. I'm like, hey, man, be honest with me. Am I too old for TikTok? And he looked at me, he's like, not yet. <laughs> and I've been very hesitant to jump on TikTok, to jump on Clubhouse. And at one point in my career, I was very much an innovator and pioneer when it came to social media. But I found a sort of equilibrium. I've become comfortable with the mix that I have. I have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, for instance, LinkedIn. But I'm also cognizant that if I continue to repeat patterns of work and being and doing that brought me success in the past and insist on it in the face of changing data, then I'm engaging in what is producing active inertia. And that's what we have to be careful of. So it is okay to have a conservative approach when it comes to innovation. It's okay to ask tough questions about whether or not this is going to be a fad in the future um, and not invest too much time, energy, and attention into it, but always be sort of checking your gut and asking yourself and looking and surveying the, the external environment to realize if maybe a paradigm shift is happening and you might not be participating in it. So for example, I can tell you right now, I was very wrong about TikTok. When it was first coming out, I was like, oh man, here today, gone tomorrow, this is gonna be a fad. And I missed the opportunity because I saw it very early to get in at the ground floor and build up a following. But here's the thing, it's not too late. The wrong thing for me to do would be to insist that it's a fad, even though there's very clear evidence that it's not. So that's the thing that people need to take away from this. You can be hesitant, you can be skeptic, skeptical, but um, you know, the, the, don't, don't, don't dismiss the data so flippantly. I think with TikTok specifically, um, it's kind of catering to that, that new technology that's able to provide you more information faster. And I think with those technologies, you really don't have to get in on the ground floor to really capture the ability for to use it to innovate for yourself. Because um, at least when I think of innovation, I think of things that help me solve my problems and things that I'm focused on. Um, so like when I think about artificial intelligence, I'm not thinking about intelligence. I'm not thinking about the predict market trends. I'm, used, I'm thinking about it in the terms of, can I analyze genomic data with it? 
And there's something to that, right? Like there's there's very clear indications that there there are some trends that they seem like trends right now, but 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 I think that would be you know my partner and I have been using the term baby thinkers. You know, if if you're looking at AI and if you're looking at machine learning and if you're looking at digital disruption and thinking ah you know like we have we have we have a long time to figure this out. That's a baby thought because like the greatest thinkers have already mapped out where this is going to be. We already know the year. By no later than 2045, is this device over here going to be able to compute more information and regurgitate it and make complex decisions better than all three of us combined? Like that's to to, to suggest anything else would be would be foolish. Like there there's there's going to be at some point. I'm not necessarily saying it's going to be the singularity, but there's going to be some singularity-like event where anything that can be automated will have been automated by that point. So what does that free up the rest of us to do? At that point, if we get caught off guard and we say, well, we didn't see this coming, that's on us because we had a lot of time to sit and process this. And I'm really glad to, to hear that you're, you're looking at AI, you know, Peter, to not necessarily look at market trends, but to map genomic data. That's brilliant. You're positioning yourself. That's an innovative thought. You are anticipating a world that hasn't yet manifested, but you're confident based on the available data is going to become real. So to position yourself today for that reality tomorrow, I think is the heart of innovation. You are going to ensure that you as an individual, when you reach, when you reach that point where you have to decide if you're going to renew or decline, you're going to look and survey your fellow colleagues and see these other doctors who haven't figured out how to use AI yet, who are struggling. They're going to be the modern equivalent of you know the person working in the office being like, I don't know how to use this new app. <laughs> I don't know how to use this, this printer. Why can't we do this? Like, People who haven't figured out AI and machine learning and, uh, you know, in my industry, programmatic advertising are going to find themselves to be relics. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm personally afraid of that. I'm, I'm cognizant all the time that there's, there's a tectonic shift taking place with a younger generation that is looking at the world very differently. Uh, and you, you the two of you represent that. The two of you represent that. But know that there's going to come a point in your life where you will become comfortable and you might develop blind spots the way that I'm becoming self-aware that I'm de developing them. So we've been talking about innovation as like this one straight line, but I, I would say that it's not, right? How do you feel like as someone who's starting to develop your own blind spots, what are you trying to do to reorient yourself to stay on the cutting edge in some way? Great question. Um, this, <laughs> th this to me is, uh, this is, this is my, my secret weapon, if you will. I think most people, when they think of mentorship, they think about getting somebody old and wise and grizzled who has walked the path. That's all fine and dandy, but I think the real secret is tapping into very inspired and wise younger people. So the two of you to me represent a promise that I know is going to manifest in a big way. Like I see the two of you right now, you're still in school. I have visions. I have premonitions of you becoming very renowned and esteemed professionals in your respective field thought leaders, people who have, I mean, I can't, I, if you had to, if you had to come, if you had to, if you had to produce a list of how many doctors have a podcast right now, I bet you it's less than 50 in the world, less than 50. I, I, would, I would think so too. Less than 50, less than 50. And how many are doing it with a level of consistency and intensity and intentionality that you're, that you're doing it? I, I like there, there might very well come a point where, and it's already happening. Like you're already seeing the sort of 
um, phasing out of traditional media. Like you think about who the popular doctors on TV are right now, they're hacks, right? Dr. <laughs> Phil's not even a doctor. Dr. Oz, what are we talking about, right? Dr. Sanjay Gupta, all right, man, do your thing. <laughs> The two of you, though, you're going to have an audience that you've already cultivated by the time that you've reached your peak. Like you're just, you, know, you haven't even started the journey yet. When that peak happens, when, when your, the, the confidence that you are capable of matches up with the confidence in the market, market conditions line up perfectly, you're going to be in the epicenter where you will be credible medical professionals with a podcast that has traction, that has built up and amassed a compounding benefit spanning years. So I see that coming back to your question about mentorship, I see that and it puts me on edge because I realize that I'm not prepared for a world in which a podcast has been going for this long with people as brilliant and as driven as you. I know that I'm obsolete in that world. So that puts me on my toes and I walk away from this being like, holy shit. If Peter and Caleb are thinking about this and they're thinking about it now, I need to catch up because by the time that they fully become operational by the time they, they maximize this value set and the skill set, there won't be any room for me. I'm going to find myself to be a dinosaur in that world. So I learn a lot from you guys and I might not always articulate it as such, but I'm downloading data. The human brain is so beautiful because it downloads subconscious data in the conversation. I'm going to walk away from this podcast and go for a walk. And maybe two weeks from now, something that you said will clue in and I'll be like, holy shit. Yeah, Peter and Caleb are thinking about mapping genomes using AI. <laughs> the hell, man? Like, I know nothing about this. I know nothing about this subject. And I don't want to be caught in the future not knowing even how to, not, not even at the very least understanding the utility of something like that. So reverse mentorship, long story short. Gotcha. <laughs> so Peter and I did an episode a long, long time ago about mentorship. And there was an idea that I shared there that I think fits really greatly here as well. And that was the idea, and I forget where I heard it, but having people around you, one person that's ahead of you that can mentor you and that you can, you can try to work towards, one person that's right with you that you can compete against, that you can push and they can push you and you guys can help each other. And then one person that you can mentor that's below you or that's working wow. to get to where you are. And so that you have people around you that are supporting you at each of those levels, trying to help you work forward. But then you also get to reflect and realize how far you've come to get to where you are right now. That's, that's brilliant, man. That reminds me very much of Matthew McConaughey's uh, Oscar speech for when he won uh, best actor for, for Dallas buyers club. Are yeah. you guys familiar with the arrival fallacy? Also, no, I haven't heard of that out, before. Man. Arrival fallacy, a cognitive bias wherein people think that when they reach their goal, that they're going to be happy. And it's a mistake, right? Like if your yeah. only goal is to graduate med school, and once you graduate med school, you're going to be profoundly unhappy. You're going to be happy maybe for a minute, but then you're going to be like, what the hell? What do I do now? I have no purpose. Like I've, I've reached the pinnacle. I've reached the apex. I'm on Mount Rushmore and kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> what do I do? So I love the idea of as a mentor, always establishing this person that is maybe five, 10, 15, 50 years ahead of you, maybe even going beyond that and establishing some sort of transcendent ideal. Maybe you idolize or look up to an idea or a person that is long dead or is fictional, or you imagine a version of yourself coming back to, to Matthew McConaughey that is always outpacing you, always disrupting you. And this in a nice way kind of comes back to concept of innovation, 
My favorite innovation exercise is to ask the toughest question that people are reluctant to answer, which is at an organizational level, what organization could take us out of business? And if Blockbuster asked that question, they'd still be around. If Kodak asked that question, they'd still be around. And maybe they asked that question, but they weren't honest with themselves. So if you think about this as an individual, who is the better version of Caleb? Who is the better version of Peter? Who's the better version of Hamza? What are they doing? And I can tell you right now, the better version of Hamza is a thought leader that's much more confident, much more bold, is creating online content and videos and bite-sized content that on a daily basis, that, that version of Hamza's output is greater. And he's establishing himself as a household name with a younger and younger demographic on Clubhouse, on TikTok, on Snapchat, and is doing so in an unabashed way. And that makes me realize that I have these own limitations, these um, self-limiting beliefs that are preventing me from stepping into my power and becoming that version of Hamza. So I just have to get real with myself. And you know what? It's this conversation. It was meant to be. I think we were meant to have this conversation to inspire me to kick myself in the ass if that's even possible and <laughs> move forward. Well, if you ever get on TikTok, send us your handle. We'll definitely plug it for you. <laughs> oh, man. You're going to have to bear with me, man. The first couple of uh, TikToks are going to be very embarrassing. It's going to be an old man trying to do these challenges. <laughs> I so can't wait to see you around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. What's the the last challenge that I saw? I don't even remember what it was, but it, was, uh, it just made me feel really old. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> There's some very young people here, and I'm I'm the old creepy creepy old guy at the party. So to get back to to your four um, reinvented leadership ideas, the bright side, the bright side, the last two, diversity and empathy. So why do you see diversity? We'll start with diversity. There's a lot of evidence now that diverse teams perform better, and that's well-known in, in business, that's well-known in creative spaces. Other than performance, what are some things that you think should convince people that diversity is something that should be sought out, um, I guess, apart from performance specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like morally it's the right thing to do to not discriminate against a person because of their sexuality, their gender, their race, their creed, their religion, their ability, and whatever sort of uh, intersectionality you can see on the Stanford identity wheel to not discriminate against somebody based on, on, on their intersectionalities. So morally, it's the right thing to do. But I think truly the, 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 real, the, the best answer is, is an economic one. And it is uh, diverse teams, to your point, Caleb, are more effective teams. The, there's no debate about it anymore. I think what has happened, however, is there's been a disproportionate amount of media coverage and almost a politicization, almost a weaponization, if you will, of the idea of race as the only diversity vector. And, you know, as, as the three of us are Americans over here, the two of you live in America, you know that there's like a palpable feeling of racial divide in the air. And it's especially played out in the last four years under the previous administration. And I'm sure the remnants of it are still around right now. It's impossible to walk around and depending on where you go, there's parts of the States that you walk to and you're like, wow, like this, something doesn't feel right over here. But when it comes to organizations though, 
what we're really striving for more than anything is diversity of background, diversity of experience, and diversity of perspective. At the end of the day, we're all trying to reach that trifecta of outcomes. Diversity of background, so have people with different viewpoints and people who can say that when I was here, we did it this way, we did it that way. So that you can avoid the active inertia that happens naturally with homogenous groups. Now, the thing though, is that diversity of background, perspective, and experience usually correlates with diversity of gender, sexuality, ability, ethnicity, so on and so forth. So I think maybe we just need to sort of flip that equation and start to see what the outcome is before we get caught up in the outputs. So, you know, to all the leaders listening to this, to anybody who's in an organization that doesn't value diversity, I hate to say it, but it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before an organization that has figured out a way to operationalize and maximize that value. Those organizations, frankly, are just better at anticipating changes because they're more connected to the external environment. And you look at a country as diverse as the United States of America. You look at a country as diverse as Canada. If you have a business that doesn't internally reflect the tapestry of people on the outside, then you're going to have a very tough time making decisions for your end user, for your customer and having empathy for them. One of our previous guests said something that'll always stick with me, which is representation doesn't just matter. It is everything. So, right. That was kind of my thought about it too. Um, so as someone like myself who doesn't feel or think that I'm the most diverse person in the room, which I don't, I think the only diverse thing about me is that I was born and raised in Hawaii. Other than that, I'm a straight mm -hmm. white male, born privileged. Um, how do I kind of cultivate and bring diversity into a team when I'm not the one who's representing the people that I want to bring into my team because I highly value their opinions and their, their contributions? Ooh, wow, 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 wow. That's heavy, man. Heavy stuff. So <clears throat> can I take a stab at that one? Yeah, yeah. Before please you please go for it, Caleb. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Save me over here because I was about to <laughs> <some time laughs> to No, but yeah. go for it. Let's hear it. I want to so, know what you think too. So so my my take would be that just because you are white and male does not mean you are not going to be part of a diverse team. A team has diversity because it has different people. And so you being white and male makes you different than somebody who from Hawaii makes you different than somebody who is uh, African-American who might be male or female from Chicago, which makes you different than somebody who might be uh, white from Canada, which makes you different from somebody who is uh, Indian background from you know, California. And so I think putting together that diverse team allows you to be a diverse voice within that team. So I guess what I mostly struggle with is how does someone like me who isn't see, who isn't perceived as diverse, you know, given everything, given like the, the perpetual thought in society is how do I attract that? That's kind of what I struggle with is I don't represent them so why would they come and follow me? Or why would they come and work on my team or work with me? I, th I think you could develop a disposition that recognizes that. And you know the, the, that, that, that to most people is very attractive. Let's say for instance, you know, um, you're studying, you're study, 
Part of your studies involves looking at instances of multiple multiple sclerosis amongst Af the African American women, right? Mm -hmm. Like something as as esoteric as that, something as niche as that. And you're leading a study on that. And if you look around the table and you see that everybody at the table, all the practitioners, all the doctors, all the students are white. And even though they might have some of that diversity that Caleb alluded to, maybe in that moment you can remember this very helpful heuristic, which is nothing about us without us. And maybe you're the person to say, hey, you know what? One of the activities I talk about in my book is leave an empty chair. Look around the table and ask who's not here. Mm -hmm. And you could be that voice. And I think you could be a champion for diversity and recognizing actively what those blind spots are and then seeking to develop relationships within the community where you can bring in experts. A great example of this, I was watching recently The Making of Soul by Pixar, where the cast got up to a certain point, the crew got up to a certain point in the story and they're like, it's just not clicking. Like we're trying to tell the story of an African-American uh, 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 character over here. And we look around the team and there's nobody that represents that experience. It's like coming across as quite inauthentic. At that point, they tapped diversity, uh, Pixar's diversity trust that came in and sort of audited the script and said, from our perspective on our ground truth, this isn't resonating for the following reasons. Here's what you need to do. And their suggestion was to bring on a co-director with the lived experience as a black man in America, as a musician to then infuse you know, that uh, missing perspective into the movie that ultimately became the beautiful film that we see today. There was a version of soul that might've come out that would have been very tone deaf to use a problematic term. It, and that would have happened only if the team didn't recognize their blind spot and had a champion like yourself, the one that you are, the one that you're becoming in the form of Pete Doctor, the director saying something's not right over here. And I think just having that awareness is good enough because I would say that you would be the exception to the rule in most cases. Mm -hmm. That was actually one of my favorite parts of your book is that phrase, who's not in the room. Who's not and in the just, room. just recognizing yeah. that um, and, and even having that thought and considering that, um, I think would really help where you're coming from, Peter. Mm -hmm. And I Thanks, think that, that goes along with the last point of your book, which is empathy, which is thinking about, you know, what, what is someone else experiencing? And so... Hamza, to round us off here, why do you think that's an important thing for a 21st century reinvented leader to, to consider? I'm getting very bullish on empathy. I'm starting to feel more and more like empathy is a primary um, value. I think it's like up there at the mount, on the Mount Rushmore of human values, side by side with resilience. I think that empathy allows that connection to happen with the external environment and the internal environment. It's a superpower, if you will. And it's best exemplified by the most effective leader on the planet, man. You would never think if you rewind, the, if you re, if you wound back the clock 15 years ago and you lined up a bunch of leaders and you said, who's not the leader? I feel like as a, as a society, we would point to Jacinda Ardern and be like, you're not the leader, get out. The leader was traditionally male. The leader was traditionally tall and good looking. The leader typically dressed sharp and spoke a certain way. But here we are in 2021 and the most effective leader on the planet unanimously is the prime minister of New Zealand. The most empathetic leader I've ever seen. I mean, every time I watch or read something about her, I laugh because of how almost like she seemed like a comic book hero in terms of her empathy. So to give you an example, when the Christchurch mosque shooting happened in New Zealand, her first reaction was not to do a press release, not to do a press run, not to get on TV and do something. No, no. Her first reaction was go to the site where the shooting happened and spend time 
with the families of the victims. Like what, who, who does that, man? That's unbelievable. A volcano erupted in New Zealand. Her first reaction, drop everything. We're gonna go and be there with the survivors. Unbelievable. Um, here is somebody who recognized that the work that needed to be done really needed to be dictated by the people, not by the leader. And this is a mistake that I think the dark triad variety of leader makes. They think in their narcissism, they 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 strategize with their Machiavellianism and they're cut off. Emp like psychopathy is the absence of empathy. You don't have any human connection. Failed leaders were unable during the COVID pandemic to identify that the, the, the chief thing that they should be doing is preserving the lives of their people. I think they were focused on a whole host of other things. A lot of them were focused on the economy, not saying that that's not important. And there are systemic determinants of health um, and social determinants of health, the economy being one of them, but immediately what your response should have been should have been pro-human. And I think nobody did a better job than Jacinda Ardern being like, look, I know this is an unpopular decision, but we have to lock the whole goddamn country down. And it's going to be an intense lockdown. We're going to enforce it with the military, but this is the way forward. And look at them. They're thriving now. They had a 10,000-person soccer game the other day. Unbelievable. Here I am in Toronto, in Ontario, Canada, and we're entering a third wave of lockdowns. Patios just opened up five days ago, and they're shutting back down again. Irresponsible leadership to the nth degree, where we have leaders that are just focus on all of the wrong things. And I think that's because they lack empathy. They lack the connective tissue between human beings. They lack the ability, in the words of Daniel Pink, to see with their eyes, to hear with their ears, and to feel with their hearts. And empathy is truly just that. It's about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, but taking it a step beyond that and caring about your needs more than they care about their own. I like that Daniel Pink quote. Actually, I heard it in his masterclass. He says it there too. Mm. Um, but he's great. And you would think uh, someone who's a self-identified salesman would kind of be like a sneaky snake guy but he's got he's got all the all the right answers when it comes to um interacting with people totally um, that uh, abc talks about attunement buoyancy clarity right mm -hmm. and attunement is very much empathy operationalized in sales it's about understanding what your needs are not being like hey peter hey caleb this is what i think you need it's about no no hold on Tell me your story. Tell me where you're at. What are you feeling? What are you going through? What are your pain points? And then let me see if I can, using the data that you've provided me, give you a solution that makes sense versus forcing you to do something you don't want to do. That's not actually helpful for you. That is only one-sided. It benefits me. Maybe it benefits you, but it mostly benefits me. And that would be a mistake. So with After having talked about your book, not just on our podcast, but I, I've noticed that you've been you've been on other podcasts and you've been sending it and reading reviews for you know people like me and Caleb and the other twenty people who have read it. Is there anything that you wanted to add as an addendum for everybody listening to that book? Interesting. Any sort of like residual thoughts I've had after publishing the book? Any observations I've made about the world? Give me a second to gather my thoughts here. Sure. I feel very confident about what I put in the book. I feel like um, the idea of stop managing, start leading was very clear and resonant throughout the book. But if I could, um, if I could put anything in as an addendum, it would be this. It would be what's going to happen. My prediction is that, and I think I alluded to this a little bit in the book, but I didn't fully articulate it as well as I wanted to because of the publishing deadline. That in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a lot of glimpses that the world is going back to another form of leadership. It's reverting back 
to that dark triads variety of leadership, that it's reverting back to the toxic triangle style of leadership. We're going to see some glimpses of and flashes of the old paradigm. I would encourage everybody in the face of that to remain vigilant, that they are just the final ebbs and flows of a dying model. It's the last hurrah. It's the last attempt globally uh, at the level of corporations and nonprofits at the last and, you know, educational institutions. It's, it's the final fight that's being mounted by the old paradigm. Uh, don't be confused by that. Remain resolute and, and put all your chips on black. Put all the chips on black and the chips are the world is going to become more diverse. The world is going to become more innovative. And the gap between those who are prioritizing the bright side values and those who are not is only going to widen. I think that's a great place to wrap for today. Instead of asking for Hamza's favorite books, because we already had him on and we can <laughs> refer back to those, we're just going to tell all of you to go read Hamza's book instead. Thank and you. so check out Hamza's new book, Leadership Reinvented. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Hamza. Guys, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Can't wait to have you guys on my podcast as well. We're looking forward to it. So that's all for today. Thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also contact us and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.